Well, it's so good to be up here. Uh, what a conference this has been. This is, I think, the best conference we've ever had, best convention. I've just enjoyed this. I've enjoyed, one of the things I've really enjoyed is, is seeing the younger men stepping up. And I know I've talked to some of the really young guys, and when I be younger men, almost everybody I've ministered with this week, I'm, I could be their father. So uh, that's making me feel pretty old. But uh, I've really appreciated seeing our younger men stepping up this week. And uh, the last three speakers, including myself, have all turned to the epistles of Timothy. So you can do that. Now take your New American Standard 1995 <laughs> and, uh, and turn with me to First Timothy. We'll get there in just a few moments, but before I, before I do that, before I start talking to you about the, uh, the uh, scriptures itself, I also want to highlight some of the fun things we've done this week. This has been a lot of joy. When we get together, we, uh, we yuck it up and have a great time. I enjoyed being on the board. Uh, I, I, I'm an observer. I notice things, so I notice right away there's no 13th floor on this, uh, the hotel. You notice that? So I enjoy getting on a hotel, on the, in a, in the elevator with different ones and saying, could you push 13 for me and watch them look all over the place. And, oh, there's no 13. And then, and we went to a ball game as a board. I haven't gone to a ball game in 25 years. It was one over to Cincinnati. It was quite the thing. And once again, I'm just observing, looking around and thinking, here are these hard seats. Everybody's squished together, sitting by people you don't even know. Uh, and we're sitting there for three and a half hours. What it, at church, you've got to have padded pews and go over hour and 15, they get up and leave, you know? So I'm sitting there watching, but there was something very similar to the ball game that I have in my church. Apparently everybody there had to go to the bathroom. Do you pastors get tired of everybody getting up in the service and going to the bathroom? There are occasions I want to stop the service and say, okay, potty break. Go, go out there, we'll come back, we'll start all over. Uh, they were doing that a lot at that time, so that was interesting. Also, the wave. I hadn't seen the wave in years. Uh, I thought a squirrel had gotten loose on the other side, and everybody was leaping up. And I thought, you know, tonight we ought to do a wave. Has the IFCA ever done a wave, Richard? Uh, uh, let's start right over here. Let's do a wave. Come on. Uh, hey, look at this. Whoa. Uh, hey. All right. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, Okay. Benny Hinn will recruit a lot of you next week for his stuff. That, that was pretty impressive. I didn't know if I'd get him to do that. That's, they're loosening up around here. It's good stuff. Uh, and then one of our board members, in introducing himself at our dinner the other day, said his preferred pronoun is in Christ. We immediately said he could not prove our documents. And I really appreciated Tom telling us that Richard had transitioned uh, this week, and that was uh, that was something Richard got. Tom didn't for a long time. Uh, and when, then one of the funnest things I did this week about we were coming back from something, and there was three of us uh, couples on the board in the elevator. We were yucking it up and having a great time. And as we were in there, some uh, stewardess, a uh, uh, attendant for one of the airlines, got on with us, and we were just having a great time. And she said, Are "You guys drunk?" And <laughs> And I remember the apostles were accused of being drunk once, but uh, didn't know if we fit that category. So I, I wanted to mediate a little bit, and I said, no, we're not drunk, we're pastors. And, yeah, and she shook her head as she got off and said, drunk pastors. Ah. Uh, and then Richard told us just the other day that the, some of the hotel staffs thought we were a fertilizer company. 
you know, the IFCA fertilizer company or something. And, and I was trying to think, what would that be? I fertilize common areas? Would, would that fit? I, I don't know. Well, uh, we in the IFCA are spreading, not fertilizer, I trust, but we are spreading something else. We're spreading the truth of God. And we've been doing that this week, and I hope this has been an encouragement for you to go, <clears throat> go home and do the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we spread God's truth, and we're looking at that uh, today and tonight and all week, actually. And as I think about that, I, I was thinking, you know, uh, we're, we're fighting an uphill battle in this area of spreading the truth. And uh, I'll give you a few few stats of some things I've, I've read recently. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research does a survey of what Americans believe about spiritual things and, and doctrine and so forth. And uh, they every time they do this, is very discouraging. But what is more discouraging is it always has a little piece of it about what evangelicals believe. And that is absolutely discouraging. Uh, before we uh, actually look at what that is, I want to define evangelical. We've been defining fundamentalist all week, but what is an evangelical? And uh, it's hard to define, isn't it? What is an evangelical today? A hundred or so years ago, he was a conservative Christian, even a fundamentalist. Uh, they were the people that believed in the fundamentals of the faith, and that was what is known as an evangelical. But that has changed, and uh, as time, we were at that point, a fundamentalist and evangelical were fighting against the modernists. Uh, but that began to change as time moved on. And in the 1940s, there was actually a split between in, in our movement. And some said, we want to engage culture differently, and we're going to do something different than the fundamentalists. They became known as the neo-evangelicals. Nobody uses that term anymore. But uh, that's what they were called at the time. We just call them evangelicals today. But what a fuzzy term. Does anybody know what an evangelical is today? Uh, in the in the new book, brand new book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, the author says, as dispensationalism faded from the scene as a serious theological option, evangelicalism lost its identity. And so as we faded from the scenes, I'll talk about that in a moment, theologically uh, left that page, uh, the evangelicals lost their identity. They don't even know often who they are or actually what they believe. But the scholars uh, turn back, the theologians turn back to a definition given by David Bevington a number of years ago. As he went back into the 1800s, he's a a church historian, went back to the 1800s, and he came up with four identifying marks of an evangelical. And these marks are these. These are the ones we still use, at least in in, uh, scholarship and theological works. They are these. Number one, an evangelical believes that the Bible is the Word of God and the standard for Christian doctrine and living. Secondly, the evangelicals believe the cross or the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary is the way in which salvation described in the Bible was one for humanity. Number three, conversion. Salvation requires repentance from sin and faith in Christ Jesus. Personal conversion and regeneration are necessary for the new birth. And then finally, activism. The evangelical believes in, in propagating the faith and telling others about the Lord Jesus. Those are the four identifying marks of an evangelical. And if you think about it for just a moment, those are very minimalistic. Uh, there is so much more that we believe and so much more that should be part of evangelicalism and fundamentalism. But even with that very minimalistic four marks of identity, only 7% of Americans identify as evangelicals. would identify with that. 50% claim to be born again, but only 7% would agree with even those four 
very simple, simplistic marks of an evangelical. That means that uh, there are very few evangelicals in America, whatever those are, and that, but so we could say this much, an evangelical should be the most dedicated of Christians in our country. Uh, whatever that is, it should be at least the, the, the slice that's the most evangelical. So let's go back to our survey from Ligonier and Lifeway and see what they had to say in that survey. Here's what they're talking about, saying about evangelicals. They found in this survey these shocking results. 50% of evangelicals, not Americans, evangelicals, believe that God changes and therefore is not immutable. I want you to think about the, the horror if that was true. That would mean that the God that we worship today is not necessarily the God of Scripture because He's changed with time. That would mean the God that people worship a thousand years from now may not necessarily be the same God that we worship now because God changes with time. That is a frightening thought, and yet half of evangelicals claim that that is true. Two-thirds believe that people are born in a state of innocence. Scripture teaches clearly that people are born uh, totally depraved, corrupted by sin, lost in their way, but two-thirds of evangelicals believe they're born in a state of innocence. A third do not believe church membership is important, and over one-half believe that God accepts the worship of other religions. And so God accepts the worship of Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims as well as those who claim to be Christians. And one-fourth do not believe the Bible is literally true. To the statement, this particular statement, Jesus was a great teacher but not God. 43% of evangelicals agreed with that statement, up from 30% three years ago. That means that almost half of evangelical Christians, the, the most conservative slice that we can identify here, almost half of those believe that Jesus was a good teacher but not God. Think about that. Jesus Christ is not God. These are disturbing numbers given that only 7% are evangelicals. But if half of that 7% believe that Jesus was created by God, which is what the survey taught us, an old heresy known as Arianism, and if 43% believe that, that he is not, he's not God, then what kind of evangelicalism do we have? Our evangelical numbers have certainly sprung a leak. So in other words, evangelicals are either ignorant of or they are rejectors of the very basic, most fundamental biblical beliefs that are found in Scripture. I want to address two things with you tonight. Number one, what has happened to conservative Christianity, evangelicals, and some fundamentals? What has happened to our churches? What, if these surveys are anywhere near close to truth, what has happened? And then secondly, I want to turn to the issue of what can we do about it? So first of all, what has happened, and I'll start with this, two things. First of all, there's an almost total collapse of interest in theology, almost a total collapse. I turn to First Timothy with me, chapter 1 and verse 3. I want to note the emphasis here on doctrine, just a brief overview as we go through. First Timothy 1, 3, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Chapter 4 and verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 6, he says, in pointing these things out, 
to the, to the brethren. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the second of the sound doctrine which you, you have been following. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 1, he says this, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine will not be spoken against. And then as we move over to chapter 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone advocates for a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. What an emphasis on doctrine. Go to, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, these epistles to the pastors, as Paul writes to them with this a very well-known verse to us, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that we, uh, he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's the qualifications of an elder. And then chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So these are repeated, and there's others in these epistles. But there also are synonyms. The faith, whenever it says the faith in these epistles, it's also a synonym for sound doctrine. And then the word truth itself. If we are to spread the truth, uh, the truth is very important in these passages. I just read a book called The Flourishing Pastor. It's one of the uh, books uh, that won the awards with Christianity Today for one of its books of the year. In that, in that book, the, the author Tom Nelson says this, The world is asking not primarily, is Christianity true, but is it good? Let me suggest to you that that is a trap. The world sees a lot of things that are good. They do not even know how to evaluate what is good. We're not just to be good, we are to be true. We need to be true and we need to be good. We need to be, the, the scriptures, the word of God, the Holy Spirit changes us for the good. It must do that if it's genuine in our lives. But it always, it comes out of, emanates out of truth. And so we are truth spreaders and truth livers. And so we go back to the passages we're looking at here and notice how often that comes up. Chapter one, chapter two, verse four of first Timothy. Going back to first Timothy for just a moment. In two, four, he says, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Chapter two, verse seven, he says, for I, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then my one of my favorite verses, perhaps my favorite verses, verse in all of Scripture, in defining the mission and the description of the church and what it should be doing, chapter 3, verse 15. If you don't know this verse, you don't live out this verse, then you're not living out the mission of the church. 3.15 says this, But in case I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Folks, we can do a lot of things, but if we're not the pillar and the support of the truth, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Lots of organizations can do good things. Lots of organizations can do benevolent things. Only the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and support of the truth. And if we're not about that, if that's not what we're doing, we're not doing what God has called us to do the pillar and the support of the truth. Chapter 6, verse 5 of 1 Timothy says this, 
and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain, deprived of the truth. We go over to 2 Timothy for a moment. I want to look at a few verses there. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then in 2.18, look what he says here. He says, Some men have gone astray from the truth. That's their problem. They strayed from the truth. Verse 25, repentance is necessary. He says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Chapter 3, verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Chapter 4, verses 3 and four, he says this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Truth. As Paul writes his last three epistles, it's all about doctrine. It's all about truth. There is no Christianity without truth. That's what makes us unique. The truth that Jesus Christ has given us. You know, four decades ago, the Gallup poll said this. They did it four decades ago. They said this. This was a conclusion of their poll. We are, we are having a revival of feelings in America, not of the knowledge of God. The church today, it said, is more guided by feelings than by convictions. We value enthusiasm more than informed commitment or truth. 19, early 1990s, David Wells, one of my favorite authors, was a seminary professor. And David Wells was, uh, this is 30 years ago or more, and he was very upset that his seminary students were coming there to be trained to be pastors and missionaries to spread the truth. These individuals were coming and they had no interest in theology. And so he decided one year to give a great speech, first of, class, first of the year, about the necessity of theology and truth. And he went on waxing eloquently, and when he got done, he thought he'd done a great job, only to find out that the students all dismissed him. One of the students came up to him, actually several did, but one came up to him. This is a pastoral student, a man planned to go into ministry to proclaim the Word of God. And he said to David Wells, in all honesty, he said this, in, uh, he wanted to know if it was right. And he was convicted that he was concer- concerned about this. He says, was it right to spend so much money on a course of study, theology, that was so irrelevant to his desire to minister to people in the church. The truth of God, the doctrines, the theology had no relevancy, he believed, to ministering in the church of Jesus Christ. David Wells at that point sat down and said, then as at that moment, I decided to write this book, No Place for Truth. Before he was done, 25 years later, he had written five excellent books. I recommend every one of them. The last of them was the, is The Courage to be Protestant, in which he calls out the church of Jesus Christ for its rejection, its ignorance of the truth of God's word, even in the ministers who are supposed to be going out giving the word of God. What has happened to evangelicalism? Well, going, let me say this. Going back to the 1970s, the consumer church was born. The secret-sensitive church was born, coming out of the Jesus uh, revolution. 
And there were many well-intentioned Christian leaders. And you've seen the movie recently, if you went to the theaters. That was really not the truth about what happened then. But, uh, they, but nevertheless, coming out of that was a well-intentioned Christian leaders who wanted to reach a generation that was turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. How are we going to reach a generation of that kind of people? And so they decided to offer them a Christianity that fit their lifestyle, that fit their taste, to fit their music desires, their amusement, and they developed ultimately the consumer church, the seeker-sensitive church. Evangelism based upon felt needs rather than biblical gospel was born. And people seemed to respond. The mega churches popped up all over the country as people came to churches dominated by this philosophy. Churches structured their preaching and their teaching around therapeutic topics, not scripture. They taught people how to feel better, how to be successful, how to have self-help, how to be prosperous. After all, every survey Barna popped out in those days said this is what people wanted to hear. And the churches built, were built around those, those surveys. People didn't care about theology. They didn't really care about the biblical gospel. They wanted to feel good. They wanted to be successful. Uh, they wanted to have prosperity. And so the church began to major on those topics that would attract those people. This form of Christianity later on became known as moralistic therapeutic deism. We trained a bunch of people to be moralistic, somewhat good. We taught them how to be therapeutic, saturated with psychology. And we taught them deism, in which they turned to God only when they needed him desperately. And folks, that is not biblical Christianity. I want to move forward a little bit more recently, maybe in the last 10, 15 years, something else has happened in what I would call the consumer church. And that is uh, the, the, the emphasis on community rather than biblical teaching. A turning away from the Bible and theology and instruction and exposition in order to have community. Now, I'm not against community. We all enjoy fellowship. We like this, this community. But as churches began to structure their churches around those things, notice what's happening in the biggest churches in your town. Churches are more and more going to two, two things. A, a weekend event, they call it event or celebration now, Saturday night, Friday night, Sunday morning, whatever, a worship service of some kind, and small groups. At the worship services, they're preaching a watered-down gospel for the unbelievers, if they're preaching a gospel at all. And the small groups are de developing community. And as good as community is, that is not the place to teach the truth of God's Word. It is not the place of instruction. It doesn't simply doesn't work. And so with these churches developing these weekend activities and their small groups, folks, there's no place left in many churches to actually instruct people in the Word of God. Sunday schools are going away. Sunday nights are going away. Wednesday nights are going away. Deep, deep Bible studies are going away. As people flock to churches that do these things. And in time, there's little appetite left for the solid teaching of the Word of God. Give us some great music. Give us a good show. Give us a bit of fellowship and we're satisfied. Thus the seeds of doctrinal decline were sown in the 70s and has, has grown and, and, and flourished from the years to come. And most people no longer know how to think doctrinally. The church has shifted from an older model with pastors being shepherds to, shepherd, to pastors being entrepreneurs and CEOs. 
Every generation risks losing the wonder of truth. And when, we, and when we lose the wonder, we begin to wander. Now, I want to turn to a wonderful theologian, a very deep theologian, for just a moment. I hope some of you can follow this, because it's very, very deep. It's a theologian known as Winnie the Pooh. In the eighth chapter of the Winnie the Pooh book, I'm not kidding here, in the eighth chapter of the Winnie the Pooh book, the gang got together and talking around like they always do. And I hope you've read this book. I read this recently. I thought it was quite fascinating. Uh, as, uh, as I'm reading this, they're, they're all gathered together talking nonsense as usual, kind of like the IFCA group of uh, board, board of directors uh, when we're goofing around. But nevertheless, they're talking about that. And, and Christopher Robbins said, guys, we need an adventure. We need some excitement. Let's go out and find the North Pole. So they said, hey, that's a good idea. So they set off on an adventure to find the North Pole. One problem, not a one of them knew what the North Pole even was. Didn't stop them. So they went out looking for the North Pole. And while they're wandering around, little Roo, the kangaroo, fell in a stream of water, about to drown. Pooh grabbed a, a stick off the ground, stick it out to him, pulled him from the stream, saved his life. The excitement was there. And then finally, Christopher Robinson, Robbins turned to uh, Pooh and said, Pooh, where'd you find that pole? He said, oh, I don't know, I just found it on the ground there, and I picked it up and used it, and, and he said, Pooh, you have found it. You have found the North Pole. They stuck it in the ground. They put a note on it, and it says this, North Pole, discovered by Pooh, Pooh found it, and they all went home happy having found the North Pole. Now, let me say just to you, that's what's happened in the church recently. Some guru comes along and says, I found it. I've got the secret sauce. Here's what the church has been missing. And they stand up and they write books and they have seminars and, and conferences and people flood, rush to them to hear what they have to say. But they haven't found the secret sauce because they've turned from the truth of God's word. And so it isn't too long that another guru stands up and says, I found the secret sauce. I found the North Pole of Christianity. Come to me and I'll show you how. And after a while, when they're disappointed with that, they turn back, but they're not turning back to Scripture. Because we don't need a secret sauce, friends. We've got the Word of God. He's told us how the church is to function. And we should turn back to that. And so the first reason why the church is struggling so deeply theologically is that the, the theology is totally collapsed in our circles, in many circles. Here's a second kind of overlapping issue. There's very little appetite for reading the Word of God in our churches today. Very little appetite for that. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 again. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Little appetite for the Word of God. Now here's, a, here's another survey, another recent study came out 2022. That's even more shocking than anything I've, I've told you so far. The American Bible Society did a study, and they found in, that 50% of American adults reported reading Scripture at least three times a year. Now get this, three times a year from 20, 20, 2011 to 2021. But by 2022, that had dropped to 39%. That meant that during the pandemic days, 26 million Americans stopped reading the Bible. 
But what is even more shocking is the Bible reader, according to their study, reads the Bible three times a year. Is there any question as to why we are, are, are famished for the Word of God, if those things are true? We're biblically illiterate because we are not spending time in the Word of God. And you know, if, if we don't have an appetite for the Word, we turn to something else. I, I've read that during famine, people eat mice and rats. And I believe a lot of Christians are starved for food, and they're turning to the mice and the rats of false teachers. It's almost like we've been living in the land of Oz, you know, and, and we, we, everything was going great, and then Toto pulled back the curtain, and suddenly we realized we're biblically illiterate. We're theologically collapsing. And we've seen it. What are we going to do about it? So I would not definitely want to stop here and say, well, that's, that's the way it is. I want to turn now to how we should respond. And I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 to look at how we should respond to these things. The bottom line as we do that, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, is that we now have an evangelical church in many places where people do not even understand the basics of truth. They have no concept of this is simplest theology. They know very little about the Bible. They seldom read it. They're easy prey for every wind of doctrine. And these same Christians claim all the time that they love God. But I altogether question how you can love someone you don't know. And you don't know God if you don't know Him through the Word. And so I'm not sure what they love, but I question their love for God. So what should we do? Well, before we look at 2 Timothy 2, go back to 2 Timothy 4, 5 for one moment. We need to roll up our sleeves and get busy. Here's what Paul told Timothy. But you be sober in all things and endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There's no place in the ministry, guys, for lazy people. If you're not going to roll up your sleeves and do the work, do the hard work of serving Christ, then you ought to do something else. But don't be a pastor. Don't be a missionary. Don't be a servant of Christ in those ways. As we turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 2, there are two timeless techniques that God gave us all along. No secret sauce here on how we are to develop disciples of Him, of Christ. The first strategy is found in chapter 2, verse 2. You all know this. Verse 2 says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What was Timothy to entrust? Go back up to chapter 1, verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words, which you heard from me. Verse 14. Guard the treasure which have been entrusted to you. Timothy, I've given you sound words. I've given you a treasure, a priceless treasure. Now I want you to give that to other people. And not just to other people. I want you to search out men and women who who love the Lord and want to know God's Word, and you teach these faithful men and women what I've given you. And more than that, you find people that also want to tell other people the same stuff, that spread it right on down the line. That is, a, that is the methodology that he's given us here. And I think sometimes we forget about that. You know, the, uh, the, the, the handoff is very important in a relay race, isn't it? I'm so happy to see so many young young adults coming along here, younger men and women who are were handing off some of his older guys the baton of God's truth. The relays are one, one in that way. 
But as I think about that here, we see in, in our churches, and I'm going to talk, talk about my church for a moment, because I think a lot of you are just like me. Our church spends a great deal of time trying to engage people that don't want to walk with Christ. Our elder board talks about these folks every week. How can we get them to come to church once in a while? How can we get them enthused about this, that, or the other? And they don't want it. And we do all we can to reach out to them. And I'm not against that. We're, we're shepherds. We do reach out. We love them. We, we're there when they need us. We, we're trying to draw them to maturity. We do everything we can for them. But if this strategy of chapter 2, verse 2 is, says anything to us, is this. We need to pay attention. We need to focus on those who want it. Those who want to know the truth. Those who want to spread the truth. Those who want to give it to others who want to spread the truth. That is what it's about. Those are the ones that will get the job done. Let's identify men and women like that. And let's begin to sit down and show them how the Word of God relates to their life. Teach them the Word of God. Teach them theology. Teach them the things that they need to know to be the kind of people God wants them to be. As I said, relay races are won or lost in the baton passing. I remember a few years ago at the Olympics, we had the best women and men, four by four, 100s, uh, runners in the world. And both teams dropped the baton and they finished out of the medals. Not because they weren't the best, but because they didn't know how to pass the baton. Our job at the IFCA, our job in our churches is to pass that on to others. We need maybe perhaps to spend less time thinking about how we can get bigger and draw more nominal people to our churches and spend more time thinking about how we contend for souls and care for those under our care. Let's identify people. This is a, a takeaway I would encourage you to do. I, I, I take away this myself. Let's identify people that want to grow, who want to learn, who want to know God's truth. Let's, let's seek these people. Let's find these people and let's offer them opportunities that they need to grow in Christ. And that might involve one-on-one -on -one meeting with them, small groups, internships, in-house Bible training institutes, reading series books together and talking about them. You know, we do all those things in our church, and I trust you do too, or will be doing that. Some of these people will catch fire. You know, one of the things I've noticed over almost 50 years in my church is that if I just get a few people on fire, others want to come along. If others are catching on and want to grow, others want to grow too. And I recommend that to you. You don't have to have 12 or 15 or 50. Find one person, one man, one woman who wants to grow in Christ, who really wants to step up and help them step up. I think that's what this verse is about. And then there's the second verse that we love and all know, verse 15 of chapter 2. The second strategy is to correctly handle the word of truth. Be diligent to present yourselves to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. It does no good to claim we love the word of truth if we don't know how to accurately exegete it and teach it. We must be hard workers. Corey talked to us the other day about this word diligent. What was that word, Corey? Spaghetti? Is that it? <laughs> you know, be diligent to present yourself. That's hard work. But more than that, it says we be diligent, to, as we most of us have heard before, to cut it straight. That's what the Greek means here, to cut the Word of God straight. Do you know how hard it is to cut a straight line? For a number of years ago, I took up woodworking, thinking that would relax me. It didn't. It, it made me neurotic. 
more than ever. I, I just before that, I took up golf. Talk about a stupid thing to do. You know, if, if you really want to relax, don't take up golf and don't take up woodworking. Take up knitting. <laughs> Motorcycle, only if you want to die. But uh, anyhow, so at, at that point in time, I began to do some woodworking. And I thought one of the easiest things I could do is make some frames. So I started out with some pieces of oak, some big pieces of oak. I was going to make, but I made the mistake. I'm going to miter the, the, the edges, the, the points as they come together. Do you know how hard it is to miter? There's like 18 different ways for each angle to make it work. So I, I cut my angles, put the frame together, and it looked like that. So I put it back to my, my bandsaw, my, my sander, and I began to shape it down and shape it down. And it was smaller, but still crooked. And I kept going. By the time I got done, I had this. It is hard to cut it straight. And it's hard to cut the Word of God straight. We as pastors need to spend ample time cutting the Word of God straight so we can give it straight to our people. And if you are not a pastor and you're a supporter of pastors, you let them have that time. They can't do everything in the church. You let them have that time to cut the Word of God straight. In the context, Timothy was to quit messing around with word games. If you read chapter 2, there was quarrels and there were silly arguments going on in the church there. And, the, and, and he needed to get back to the word, teaching the word and cutting it straight. Notice the contrast was verse 17. It says, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, in, uh, in verse 15, the word for word there is logos, the logos of truth. In verse 17, the word for talk is logos, word, same word. There's two different words going forth in his church. Two different words are going out to our people now, all the time, through books and seminars and plot, uh, podcasts and whatever. There's the word of truth, and they're the words of men. And they're not the same. Analyze the words of men through the grid of the word of truth. And Timothy is called to do that here. And he said in verse 16, avoid those who are not teaching the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it leads to further ungodliness. You don't have to go to these seminars that are teaching junk. You don't have to read every book that becomes famous for some reason. Turn to the word of God. Turn to the things that are drawing you to the word of God. Now, I want to get specific as I close this down. We're looking at these strategies. I think they're very clear. But let's get specific on our focus as the IFCA. What can we do? What should we do? Specifically, we should focus on the doctrines of the faith, the truth. And many churches, many organizations, many brothers and sisters who are somewhat different than us in their theology and their philosophy are doing that, and we're in agreement with that orthodoxy. And we can lock arms with them in many cases. But I believe the IFCA is unique. And I believe we showcased that this week, at least we have tried to. And we hope we send you home with that. There are, there are distinctives in the IFCA that very few have today. When I entered the ministry, there was many groups doing these things. There are a few today. And the IFCA has the opportunity today to stand up and do what very few others are doing. And I believe it's time that we do that. There are certain doctrines that are, are load-bearing walls. You know, if, if you ever 
taken a, a wall out of your house. I had the carpenter come to my house one day, took out some wall between my living room and my dining room, and my ceiling virtually collapsed on the floor. It was a load-bearing wall. When you take the load-bearing walls out, you got a problem. There are certain things we must stand on. These are load-bearers for our movement, and I believe that are for Jesus Christ. And so on top of the standard orthodox things that we agree with on the gospel and the trinity and things that we all are with, here are the four distinctives that I mentioned at the business meeting the other day that I believe the IFCA must stand on and must propagate. And this is our time, men and women, to showcase, to stand up for these things. The first one is inerrancy. Many claim to be believing in inerrancy, but they nuance it. They changed the meaning of it. We wrote articles recently in our IFCA magazine on inerrancies. One writer named Mike uh, Lacona wrote a book called Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? And he wrote these words. This is supposed to be an evangelical Christian. There's differences in the Gospels because the Gospels are semi-biographical. Details of their narratives have been regarded as legendary and factually erroneous to both academia and theologically, both academically and theologically unsound, this evangelical says that the word of God is a, often a fiction. And yet he would say he believes in inerrancy. That's not our inerrancy. The inerrancy, a very quick definition, is the Bible is without error or fault in all its teachings. Everything. Everything. Then the second one is cessationism, almost a dirty word in many circles today. Very few influential Christian leaders are cessationists today. If I were to tick off the names I've written in my document here of the, the big names in evangelicalism today, the authors that we many of us love and read and learn much from, the conferences that they lead and so forth, if I were to tick off their organizations and their names, I'd probably make many of you angry. But most of these people are not cessationists. They believe that there's additional revelation being given to various methods today. Uh, the cessationist believes that the sign gifts are no longer there because their purpose has been fulfilled. But we also believe that there is no additional revelation given today because the Word of God is closed, the canon is closed. And cessationism is the only true safeguard to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. If we believe the scriptures can be added to in any form, then the whole Christian enterprise can change in a moment. We're cessationists. We have been given the full revelation of God that he wants us to have for this day. Who's teaching that? Very, very few today. We do. Cessationism is looking for a home, and we that home is right here in the IFCA. Thirdly, dispensationalism. In the rise and fall of dispensationalism, the author Daniel Hummel documents how dispensationalism rose to prominence as a heavyweight theological contender and as perhaps the most dominant system to understand Scripture on a popular front. But today, he says, in the academy, in the seminaries, nobody, the theologians, are not any longer teaching dispensationalism. There's a pop form that's available and many people believe in his pop form, that Christ is coming back, the Antichrist is coming, a few things like that. But they have no concept of, of the dispensational understanding of the Word of God. 
That's what he says. I believe he's wrong. I believe in this room alone, we have scholars and theologians who, and in the IFCA who could not be here this week who are writing very solid teachings about dispensationalism that's not, not, not minimalistic. It's not superficial. It's great stuff. We have great thinkers in the IFCA alone. And dispensationalism is where we stand on that. And there are few left today, very few, if we want to look at organizations and even schools that are standing for dispensation, biblical dispensationalism. And before we dismiss it too quickly, I want to read a very quick quote from a non-dispensationalist, George Ladd. You know George Ladd, he is the father of the uh, of a movement today under eschatological movement, eschatological movement of uh, we're already in the kingdom and not yet. That's that's everywhere. He's a father of that. He's anti-dispensational. But here is what George Ladd himself said in 1952, and I've read this by other Reformed theologians. Very similar stuff. Here's what he said: It is doubtful if there's ever been in, in any other circle of men than dispensationalists who have done more by their influence in preaching, teaching, and writing to promote the love for Bible study, a hunger for the deeper Christian life, a passion for evangelism, and a zeal for mission in the history of American Christianity. Dispensationalism has done that. And yet these folks say, eh, that's for superficial people who don't understand things. Hardly. Dispensationalism has changed the world. Let's not let it go. The Lord has used that mightily within our institutions, in our churches, and in the IFCA. And then finally, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. IFCA long has stood for grammatical, historical, literal, normal, whatever you want to call it, hermeneutics. Authorial intent. We're looking for what the authors of Scripture gave us through the inspiration. We recognize symbols, we recognize figures of speech, we recognize parables, but we believe that, that, that we can understand the Word of God. It's understandable if we apply the proper hermeneutical methods. Sola Scriptura that came out of the Reformation is stripped of any value at all if we don't have this kind of hermeneutic. And there's very few have it today. If you read the academy, if you read the scholars, they're backing away from, from this type of hermeneutic everywhere you go and go in other directions. Yet grammatical historical hermeneutics is under attack. Theologians are attacking it, insisting that the creeds are over the scriptures in authority. The ancient church fathers are over the, the, the teachers of the word of God today, the scriptures. Publications like Christianity Today publish articles and, and so forth by people like Daniel Hubble. Hummel, who said that this kind of reading of the Bible is called, he calls it Bible reading made just for the simplistic person. It's almost as if there's a group of people out there in the academy that are absolutely afraid that you might understand the Bible if you read it. They're afraid of that. And so you've got to become scholars in ancient Near East cultures. You've got to know Greek philosophy with Plato and Socrates and so forth. You, got, you have to know the early church fathers and read all their writings. You have to be steeped in the creeds. You know what? A very simple person with the Word of God applying proper, plain hermeneutics can understand the Word of God and their lives can be changed. You've seen it in every church in this room. And let's stand for it. Folks, this is our time. 
Those four distinctives, on top of everything else we believe, those four distinctives are ours. I don't know, honestly, of any other group in America that is doing any better job of showcasing those things than the IFCA. It's time we recognize that more clearly. We are not just a fellowship, as much as we love fellowship. We are a movement. We are a movement for this generation to go forth and take these great truths to the world around us and to Christianity around us. The church faces its greatest challenge not when new errors show up, but when old truths are no longer matter. The Bible and truth is not so much being rejected by many today as it's simply being ignored. We need to know the difference between error and truth and proclaim it. A number of years ago, I was in Brazil and ministering there. When I'm in, when I'm in a country like that, I take along with me uh, these tubes of toothpaste, these little sample things, you know, because they're easy to use. And so I, I have these little tubes of toothpaste. And, and I was in Brazil. You're not supposed to drink the water in Brazil. If you've ever been there, I recommend you don't. And so I had, I was, but I, one day I was in my room and I was going to brush my teeth. And I started brushing my teeth. And as I did, the, the toothpaste really tasted weird. And I noticed that I had my cortisone tube <laughs> with me. Looks a whole lot like toothpaste, right? And I'd loaded my toothbrush with cortisone. Because it looked so much alike and I didn't, couldn't tell the difference. Boy, we need to tell the difference theologically. But I would say this. My teeth have never itched since. <laughs> Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of truth. We thank you for your, the preciousness of the treasure you've given us. What a privilege we have been given to proclaim it to the world to go home and proclaim it more boldly and, and uh, excitedly in our own churches, to live it out ourselves, Father. What a precious thing. What a, what a week this has been. Uh, we all should be going home encouraged to serve you and love you deeper and more, to minister for you in ways that perhaps uh, we needed refreshing on. I thank you for this movement, Lord. I thank you for Richard and our, our board, our leaders. I pray, Father, that going forward, that, the, that we will get excited about promoting and supporting financially, praying for this movement of IFCA, and may our best days be in front of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.